may have surprised you a bit when you opened the handout and saw we were talking about Christmas things today. It just doesn't seem quite like Christmas yet. I guess Thanksgiving was so late that uh, kind of slipping up on us here, but it is that time of year. Have you got any Christmas cards yet? Anybody starting to get a few? A few people get them, get them out real early and are... Uh, Probably have already started. I think the style of Christmas cards is kind of interesting. Uh, what people send. Uh, some send Merry Christmas. And some would like to take that word out of this season. Some people in the world would not to. Uh, so some go with something like Happy Holidays. A little more politically correct. And you cover all the holidays around this time of year. Uh, some would, uh, uh, or season's greetings work. You can put just a... Pretty winter scene and season's greetings, and uh, that'll cover it for some people. Uh, some people try to mix things. They'll get a Christmas tree and an ornament and then put a scripture in there. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. That's a good mix of secular and religious, I guess. Um, some go full in-your-face nativity scene. You know, this is Christmas, and we're going to put Christ in Christmas, and so we'll put it right there on the card. Now, of course, some tried to just avoid the controversy altogether, not get either secular or religious, just make it totally all about the family. And so they put a picture of their family in their card. Now, there's a danger there. Uh, If mom is a little too creative, it can be... Kind of a bad thing. Um, and matching sweaters is bad, I'll admit. But there are worse things. Uh, now, <laughs> I like that one. Uh, nothing is more pleasant on a Christmas card, of course, than joyful babies. Um, But of all the Christmas cards I looked at, all of those are out of date. If you're going to do family, you might as well do a modern family. Okay, here, here's the safest card I found. Happy, non-denominational, religion-optional, generic, holiday-type season. That'll, that'll get you by with anybody. That's just, that just doesn't offend anybody anytime. Being politically correct may not concern you. Uh, but let's think for just a moment about being biblically correct. Uh, being biblical correct causes us to ask two questions. Those two questions are, uh, what does the Bible say about Christmas? And secondly, what does the Bible say about the birthday of Jesus? Now, the answer to those two questions is nothing and nothing. Uh, the Bible doesn't mention Christmas. That's not a Bible word. It doesn't say anything about the birthday of Jesus. It talks about the birth of Jesus, uh, but not the birthday in the sense that we talk about birthday. Uh, it was three or four hundred years before any Christian ever thought of celebrating a birthday for Jesus. Uh, Christians celebrated his death and his resurrection every week. But the idea of having a birthday party once a year just didn't occur to anybody. Uh, It just wasn't wasn't proper. In fact, uh, most of them thought that was pagan. The pagans celebrated the birth of their gods, but since God was eternal, uh, Christians didn't think that that was a proper 
thing to do. Uh, but after three or four hundred years, somebody decided, well, we probably ought to have a day that we mark as Jesus' birthday. And so they talked it all over and came up with all sorts of nominations because nobody knew. The Bible doesn't say when it was. And they ended up picking December the 25th. Uh, most people believe uh, the church picked that because it was already a holiday season. There were winter festivals then and uh, different uh, pagan holidays, and their idea really was to kind of co-opt those pagan holidays and turn it into a Christian holiday and stop all the revelry and the drinking and all that went on with the pagan stuff. I don't think that worked real well, but that was kind of the idea. Uh, and it was at first rejected. Very few people uh, bought into it. It was a thousand years later before it was pretty common for people to believe that December 25th was the birth of Jesus. Uh, now, basically everybody believes that. I think all the average folks on the street, if you stopped them and asked them when was Jesus' birthday, well, December 25th. They probably thought that was on his driver's license, 12 25 uh, I guess is what it would be. But uh, we just don't know when it is. We don't know anything about it. So... What's that got to do with anything? Well, do you celebrate Christmas or not? Not not do you have Christmas cards because it's politically correct or not, but is it biblically correct or not? And I think things have changed a ways. Some of you that are old enough to remember, when I was a kid, uh, my folks sent season's greetings cards. Uh, they didn't put Christmas on there on purpose. Uh, they made sure that people knew that we knew the difference. Uh, we, we didn't sing Christmas carols around Christmas time. We, we went caroling, but we didn't sing them in here, particularly. Uh, the preacher was liable to preach on anything but the birth of Jesus, uh, just to teach people and to show people that uh, we know the difference. We're people of the book, and the book doesn't talk about Christmas. It doesn't tell us when Jesus was born, so we're not going to celebrate it once a year. And I understand that. And I understand that some of you probably feel that, no, you shouldn't celebrate it in any way. That's okay. But although I understand that mentality, that thinking, I think we miss an opportunity if we become that strict about something or that, that careful about something. Uh, we miss a chance to talk about what people are interested in. Uh, at this season, people pay attention to Jesus. There's something special about these carols and the, the message and the, the story of Jesus' birth and all of that. So that's why, even though I know the Bible doesn't say anything about his birthday, uh, we're spending three weeks talking about Christmas carol theology is what I called it. Uh, that's because there is a lot of Bible in Christmas carols, in some Christmas carols. I don't think Rudolph has got too many, and a few others don't have too much. But there's a lot of the old Christmas hymns that have some great Bible in them. Uh, and they are powerful attractions to people, people that, uh, that have nothing to do with religion or Christianity. These things affect them. I was watching a secular program on TV the other night, a singing program. I can't remember which one it was, but uh, one of the things they sung was, Oh, Holy Night. And it was different in there. 
It was different in the audience. And, and the moderator and the people that were in charge, and all that, they showed some pictures. And they had tears in their eyes, some of them. Yeah. This concept, this, this idea that's portrayed in carols is a powerful, powerful thing because the message of the gospel is powerful. Our first carol that we're going to talk about is Old Little Town of Bethlehem. Now, uh, we're going to look at the, the, the story of where it came from. We're going to look at the theology and see if we can learn a few things from this great old carol. Uh, the story of this carol is from 1865. A fellow named Phillips Brooks uh, wrote the words to the song. You can see that in your handout or in your songbook. Uh, Phillips Brooks was a great preacher of his time, and he was burned out in 1865. He had become very famous. He preached in Philadelphia, and he was, he was a great orator. And he had recruited a fellow named Lewis Redner, who you'll also see mentioned on your handout, uh, to be his Sunday school superintendent. And he was a great musician, this Redner. So together, uh, Brooks preaching and Redner's singing and song leading and uh, songwriting and all that uh, made this church in Philadelphia a hot place to go. Everybody wanted to be exploded in growth. And then the Civil War came along. And uh, almost every woman in the crowd was wearing black because they'd either lost a husband or a son in the Civil War. And so I can only imagine how difficult that would be to maintain the, uh, the joy and the, the upbeat uh, uh, service mentality that you'd like to have uh, when you're in a period of war. When everybody's mourning. And that began to weigh on Brooks, and it became more and more difficult for him uh, to, to, to preach. He was having a hard time. And then Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. And the country went into a depression over that. And Brooks was such a great orator, they asked him to preach Lincoln's funeral. Uh, he did. He had a hard time making it through it, but he did it. And after that, he was kind of bottomed out spiritually. Things were just too tough uh, for him to go on. So he took a sabbatical, and he went to the Holy Land. Took a journey in 1865. It would be quite a journey, but he went over to the Holy Land. And on Christmas Eve in Jerusalem, uh, he decided that he'd get a horse and ride out to Bethlehem. Just a short ride. So on Christmas Eve, he ended up in the little town of Bethlehem. And they were having services, of course, in the, the church of the nativity, they call it, supposedly the spot where Christ was born. And he wrote about what happened that night. He said, I remember standing in the old church in Bethlehem, close to the spot where Jesus was born, when the whole church was ringing hour after hour with splendid hymns of praise to God, how again and again... It seemed as if I could hear voices I knew well telling each other of the wonderful night of the Savior's birth. And when he returned, he wanted to express all that he had felt there, so he sat down and wrote a poem. And he had his friend Louis Redner provide the tune, and that's where old little town of Bethlehem came from. Now, that's where the carol came from. But the power of the carol 
is revealed to us in Micah chapter 5. It was already read for you, but let's read it again. Uh, And this promise is that Micah prophesied about the judgment of God and the faithfulness of God. And he said the Messiah was going to come from the line of David. And the amazing thing about this is when Micah wrote this, the last person in David's line was in captivity over in Assyria. The chance that David's line was going to produce anything was pretty far-fetched. And in the midst of all that suffering and hopelessness, God told Micah, said, here's where the Savior's coming from. So in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, Micah wrote, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. And in verse 4, He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely. For uh, this is his greatness. Then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. That's where the power of the carol comes from. It's what's going to happen in Bethlehem. Let's read his carol together. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. For Christ is born of Mary, and gathered all above, while mortals sleep the angels keep their watch of wondering love. O morning stars together proclaim the holy birth, and praises sing to God the King in peace to men on earth. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in, be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell. O come to us, abide with us, O Lord Emmanuel. The theology of that carol is really pretty simple. Uh, Let's look at the title. O little town of Bethlehem. O little town. God chose an insignificant place. Bethlehem's famous to us because where Jesus was born. It wasn't famous then except kind of known as the town of David. It it wasn't impressive. It wasn't uh, on a crossroads. It wasn't a trade route. It was a little suburb of Jerusalem. Population about 150 probably at that time. Uh, There's two lists of towns in Judah in the Bible. You can find all the towns listed in Joshua 15 and Nehemiah 11. Bethlehem's not even mentioned. Not significant enough to be covered. We know Jacob's wife Rachel was buried there and we know David was born there. And that's about it. But 700 years before Jesus was born... God said, that is where I'm going to enter the world. Totally insignificant little town. And for parents, God chose a peasant couple. Mary and Joseph, we, they're famous to us, but uh, they were certainly nothing then. 
They weren't impressive. They weren't successful by the world's eyes. Joseph was a blue labor carpenter. Wasn't wealthy, wasn't powerful, wasn't from high society. He was just a good man. Just a good man who loved God. And Mary was not from society or anything special. She was just a peasant girl from a small town. She was just an obedient, faithful young woman. And for his own entrance, and this is, I'd tell you to think about this or try to get your mind around it, but you can't. You can't figure this out. The, the, the omnipotent, omniscient, eternal creator of the universe chose to step out of his throne room. That's what this is about. He chose to come down here uh, and live among us. He left the company of legions of angels. And he entered this world. And when he did it, he did it as a helpless infant. didn't have to. He could have come as a king. He could have come on a white horse. He could have come any way he wanted to. But what this story tells us is that God when he chose to do this, chose an insignificant place and a peasant couple, and he chose to be a helpless infant when he came to earth. The verse that says, his ways are not our ways, is true. It's not the way we think about things. It's not the way we'd choose to do it. But that's how God chose to do it 2,000 years ago. And when you, when you sit down and think through that, it's, it's amazing Sort of, unless you read all the Bible and then it's not that amazing because that's the way he always does things. He does things differently than we would think of. If you've got the Philistine army and a giant that you want to whip, what do you do? You get a little boy with a slingshot. If you've got a nation in captivity that you want to free from the most powerful army in the world, what do you do? You get an 80-year-old shepherd. If you've got a holocaust coming, a nation is about to kill all the Jews in that nation, how do you stop that holocaust? You get a pretty young girl. If you want to announce that God is coming to earth, this amazing thing we're talking about this morning, if you want somebody to announce that to the world, what do you get? You get a wild man to come in out of the desert, eating locusts. If you want to open the doors of the kingdom, if you want to pick somebody to preach the first sermon and tell people, here's how you get into the kingdom of God, who do you pick? Pick a rough, old, tough fisherman that's already fouled up so many times you can't count them. See, any of that make sense to us? None of it does. But that's the way God does things. He still does. Read 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27 28. I'll read them for you. God, Paul says, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. 
He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. That verse says that God uses weak things, foolish things, lowly things. That's how God operates. That's how he gets things done in this world. Now, it's not the way we think, but it's pretty good news. <laughs> Anybody ever in here ever feel kind of weak and insignificant and lowly, foolish, unimportant, helpless? If you ever feel like that, you're God's kind of guy. That's who he's looking for. That's, what he, that's who he does things with. Go back a little bit in, in 1 Corinthians, start in verse 18. And the whole message, not just the story we're talking about today of the birth, but the whole life of Christ and the message of the cross, Paul says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. That passage says there are two ways to look at God's workings. What that tells us is that what appears foolish may be powerful. All of this weak and insignificant and foolish thing, that's where the power comes from when God's involved. Now, I call this the Christmas Carol theology, theology of the study of God. And in this carol, we learn this about God. This is the way he does things. He, he does things that to men appear foolish, but they turn out to be powerful. He uses weak and lowly and insignificant to accomplish great things. Now, we look around in our own life, in our own history here, just at Northside, and we can see some of this. Now, there was a little church on Jackson, but... Fewer people that are here this morning, 27 years or so ago. And they said, you know, it'd be a good idea to start a TV program. And they didn't have the money for it. And from man's point of view, a lot of folks there said, no, that doesn't make good sense. But some faithful elders said, yeah, we're, we're going to do that. And that program has turned out to be powerful. Many of you in this room, many of you in Christ because of that program. The, the women's conference is coming up in a few months, and we've kind of gotten to where we accept it as a huge thing. But when it started a few years ago, 
It was kind of a foolish thing, folks. Two women came to the elders and said, we think this would work. If we just let God do it, we could fill this building up. We, we could help women all over the country. Now, how are you going to do that? We don't know. But we think God can do it. If we'll pray and be faithful, I think he can do it. We've outgrown this facility now. We're just trying to figure out what to do next. It's become a powerful thing. We get a foolish idea every once in a while. Well, let's send some folks to, some young couples, some inexperienced, not, not solid missionaries, some inexperienced folks. Let's send them to China and Japan and Scotland and places like that and just send them over there and let God work through them. That's kind of foolish. But you look around a few years later and see what's happening because of it, and this starts to make sense. God uses what appears foolish to be powerful. The whole idea of Christmas seems foolish <laughs> if you if you just stop and think about it. I mean, we got a national holiday about a helpless baby being born to a pair of nobody parents in a little nothing town two thousand years ago. Got a national holiday for that. Ah, no, no, December 25th is the wrong date, and it's an arbitrary date, and it's probably not even close. And I know some of you can say, well, Christmas isn't anything to do with that anymore. It's just capitalism going crazy. Well, let me ask you something. If Christmas is so foolish, why does the ACLU get so excited about it? Why do they want to stamp out anything that has anything to do with it? Because it's powerful. The the story is powerful. I mean, why does a great organization like the ACLU care if you put a plastic donkey out on the lawn? They shouldn't. That sounds foolish, but it's powerful. I think Dr. Seuss had the answer. He had the answer to quite a few things, by the way. Didn't know anything about environmentalism, but he did know a few other things. And so the Grinchus told Christmas, you remember the story? Well, here's how Dr. Seuss told it. After the Grinch had done everything and stolen all the presents, he said, every who down in Whoville, the tall and the small, was singing without any presents at all. He hadn't stopped Christmas from coming at all. It came without ribbons. It came without tags. It came without packages, boxes, or bags. Then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. Maybe Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas, perhaps, means a little bit more. And it does. You can take away all the capitalism stuff. Christmas is a powerful thing. The the concept... It means that God loved you so much that he came to tell you so. It means that God loves insignificant and weak and helpless and lowly. 
means that's who he loves to use. It means that he took the form of a helpless infant so he could relate to us, so he could grow up and experience everything we experience uh, that you and I have to experience. It means that peace is available to you. It means you can be reconciled to God. That's what the angels are singing about. It means you can spend eternity with Him. It means God came to be with us, Emmanuel, God with us. There is something more to Christmas. Two missionaries were working in South America and were kidnapped for ransom, country of Colombia, and they were being held for ransom in this little hut, had an armed guard around the clock. They weren't allowed to speak to each other. They had to be silent all the time. Well, the two of them kept track of the calendar so they knew what day it was and what season it was. And On Christmas Day, one of them got up and started to wander kind of aimlessly around their little room, and he was kicking the dirt and the straw the whole time he was walking and seemed innocent enough, but when he was done, he got the other one's attention and pointed down to the ground. He had arranged the straw to spell out Emmanuel. Just one word. Uh, They couldn't speak. But he spelled out in the straw Emmanuel. Just one word, but it's the heart of the message. It's what this carol and all the others we'll look at are about. That God is with us. That's the meaning of the little town in Bethlehem. A peace and comfort and hope and faith and reconciliation and salvation. God with us. The song tells us that there was a day in Bethlehem when in the straw was the encouragement for mankind. Notice the last stanza of Brooks' poem. It's a prayer. Let's close with this prayer this morning. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell. O come to us, abide with us, O Lord Emmanuel. You've not asked the Lord to abide with you if he came to tell you that he wants to. If you haven't done that yet, do so today. Let's stand and sing. If you need to come, please come.